Have you ever owned or perhaps used a traveler's guide? Um, I suppose traveler's guides are, are going out of style. They are uh, sadly probably uh, to be replaced by apps. Um, there's something I think quite quaint and romantic about uh, a traveler's guide, isn't there? The, uh, the idea behind a traveler's guide, of course, is that they, they provide you with directions uh, on your journey through a foreign land. Uh, you'll only be in the country or a particular area for a limited amount of time, so these guides, they provide you with the best places to go, the, the places you really must see, um, some things that you really must do. The, the best guides provide you with food that you really must eat while you're there. And some traveler's guides provide a pathway to using your time well in a place in which you're unfamiliar, you're unknown, you're just passing through, and maybe even a little uncomfortable. As I've been reading First Peter this past week, it strikes me that this little letter is something of a traveler's guide for Christians, even modern-day Christians. This letter from Peter is what we hope to study for the next few months together. Now, Peter doesn't tell us where we need to go or what we should do, but he does teach us how to live as strangers in a foreign land, how we as Christians should live faithfully in a world that is not really or ultimately our home. And I pray that the Lord be pleased to overwhelm our hearts with the sufferings and glories of Jesus as we sojourn and travel through this world and as we study First Peter. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you and invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 1014. 1014. One of the first realities that we're confronted with is this epistle's existence. Uh, this is a letter, that's what an epistle is, it's a letter to a group of Christians back in the first century. But then we must immediately ask, what are Christians, where do they come from, and why do they need letters? Well, Christians are followers of Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. Christians are those who believe that after God created the world and everything in it, that mankind sinned and rebelled against God. But in God's great mercy, he promised that one day he would send a savior to redeem fallen mankind, to rescue men and women from the wages of sin, eternal death in hell. The whole Old Testament announced and held forth those promises that God would send a redeemer. And then one day, God brought those promises to pass. By taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus being fully God and fully man lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He died bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sin and placed their faith in him. And three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He did what nobody else has ever done before. He got up from the dead never to die again. He did all of that. So that those who would turn from their sins and place their faith in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So Christians are those who have faith in Jesus and those who follow Jesus. Are you a Christian? Do you believe that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins? You should. You should believe that. Because it's wonderful, glorious, and good news. You should turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So call upon him to save you today, to save you even now. 
Christians are those who have faith in Jesus and those who follow Jesus. But Christians are also those who don't know everything. I know that we sometimes act like we don't know everything, but we really don't. So Jesus, he wisely gave the early church apostles who would write divinely inspired letters instructing Christians on how to live in a way that displays the good character and glory of God. That's why we have letters. We need this letter from Peter, really this letter from God through Peter. And what this letter, what is this letter from Peter about? What, what is it that actually Christians need to hear? Well, if I had to summarize the message of Peter's letter into a single sentence, I think that it would be this, live as God's exiles. Live as God's elect exiles. The, the overall aim of Peter's letter is to strengthen sojourning and suffering Christians who are longing for their home country, which is a heavenly one. Several of these themes are going to become apparent in the text that's before us today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. In these verses, we discover the author of the letter, the audience who received the letter, the assurance that God will guard and keep his people so that they receive their inheritance, and the announcement of salvation offered by God's old covenant prophets and proclaimed by new covenant preachers. And these matters are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. The author, the audience, the assurance, and the announcement. The author, the audience, the assurance, and the announcement. Let's begin with our first point, the author of this letter. We meet the author in the first verse of the letter, but it's part of a larger greeting. So let me just go ahead and read Peter's opening greeting found in the first two verses of this letter. Follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, this uh, will come as no surprise to you, or at least it shouldn't. The author of 1 Peter is Peter. It's right there in the beginning. But look at how Peter identifies himself. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, though we are presently considering the author of this letter, we need to understand that even these very first words, the very first words of this epistle, this letter, are a profound proclamation of God's grace, mercy, and kindness. Yes, those words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, are a profound proclamation of God's grace, mercy, and kindness. You see, Peter, as we meet him on the pages of the New Testament, is full of weakness and sin. We meet him first in the Gospels as one of the most outspoken followers of Jesus. He was not only part of the 12 disciples who originally followed Jesus, but he was also a member of what appeared to be kind of the inner circle of three among those 12 disciples. He was often found with James and John having key conversations with Jesus. Peter was famous for his confession of Jesus as the Christ, the messianic king that the Old Testament promised. But Peter, he was equally famous for rebuking the one he just confessed was the Old Testament messianic king. Peter foolishly rebuked Jesus. Peter walked on water. 
But then he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to think. Peter was the one who, when Jesus was being arrested, drew out a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Peter promised Jesus that he would never disown him, but then he denied and disowned Jesus three times. Peter proclaimed the good news to Jews and to Gentiles, but then he also sinfully divided God's people. He shunned and shamed Gentiles, and he had to be rebuked and corrected for doing so by the Apostle Paul. This Peter is the Peter who's writing this letter. This Peter is the Peter who identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is either audacious or God is very gracious, or both. Yes, both. Though Peter is full of weakness and sin, he is loved and forgiven by God. In the kindness, grace, and mercy of God, Jesus has called and commissioned Peter to be one of his apostles. And I think Jesus' grace toward Peter ought to give us gallons and gallons of hope. Like Peter, we are impetuous, we are fickle, we are flawed, we are filled with sin. But those are just the kind of people that Jesus loves and that Jesus loves to use. He, Peter, well, Jesus definitely used Peter in his kingdom. For Peter was one of the first expositors of Scripture on the day of Pentecost. He was one of the first to proclaim the excellencies of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He was an apostle. And that word apostle means sent one. Apostles are messengers. They are, they're sent to deliver a message on behalf of someone else. And in the New Testament, the term apostle is especially applied to those whom Jesus personally and directly commissions to deliver the message about him. Apostles are those who personally saw the risen Lord Jesus. And we know that this is true about Peter from the Gospels, but he even discloses this truth in this letter. If you flip over, and go ahead and flip over to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 5, it's just a couple of pages over. You see there in verse 1, Peter reveals something about himself. Do you see what he writes there? So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Do you see here? Peter was not only a fellow pastor and preacher, but he was also one who witnessed the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And Peter was also a witness to Jesus in his resurrected body and glory. He saw the risen Lord Jesus. Peter, even after Jesus' resurrection, he ate with Jesus on the shores of the Tiberias. Peter's sin and his salvation through Jesus make him especially well equipped to be a servant of the Lord Jesus. Peter's sin, his salvation, his sight of the risen Christ, his imprisonment and his suffering make him an especially, especially suitable author. Peter writes to suffering Christians as one who knows what it means to suffer. Peter, as we'll see throughout this letter, is sympathetic toward his fellow sojourners. But he is also fully persuaded that suffering for Jesus is worth it. From the historical evidence we have, it appears that Peter suffered and died under the rule of Nero in Rome sometime around 64 AD. And it's likely that that's where Peter is writing from. Most conservative scholars date this letter sometime between 62 and 64 AD. And now here's the implicit application 
that I now want to make explicit for us. Because Peter is a recipient of grace and witness of Jesus' sufferings, because Peter was faithful to the end, and most of all, because Peter is divinely commissioned by Jesus to be his apostle, his messenger, we should listen to his letter and obey. He is a spokesman for Jesus. What he says, Jesus has said. What Peter says to the church, Jesus says to the church. And as we study this letter, we need to study it as God's word to us. Peter is writing this letter, and he is writing it to those who are chosen, to those who are elect exiles. That's his audience, and it's the second point of this sermon. Listen to how Peter, flip back to, um, to 1 Peter chapter 1 again, and take a look at how Peter describes his audience once more in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We see here that Peter's audience are those who have been chosen. That's what the word elect means. It simply means chosen. Some of your translations may have chosen to use chosen right there in the place of the elect. In, in this instance, that actually might be a preferable word. Uh, the word chosen is far more personal than the word elect. We might uh, go to the ballot box and we might elect a representative, but we have really little to no relationship with him. But the idea here is far more relational. Um, they are chosen, Peter's audience, they're chosen in accordance, we see there, the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's in verse 2. And the idea of God's foreknowledge has to do with his love. If you, if you flip over to chapter 2, just flip over to chapter 2, you can see how Peter uses this same word with respect to Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, we read this. As you come to him, this is Jesus, uh, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So you see how God's affection is connected with God's choice of Jesus. And the same, of true, the same is true of this audience. Those whom God has foreknown... We could, we could, uh, the same, it, it, the same, those whom God has foreknown, we could simply say those whom God has foreloved. And I think this is, this is wonderful that God loves sinners like us. But what are these loved ones chosen for? Flip, flip back uh, to, to the first chapter again. We'll discover more reasons we read in this letter. But here in this greeting, we see that among other things, they are chosen for sanctification of the Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, to use the words of the, the old catechism, sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are made new in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Sanctification is both the, the setting apart of the believer unto salvation, and it is also the believer's progressive growth in Christ's likeness. Sanctification is executed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is not only, it's not the only thing that these loved ones were chosen for. See, these loved ones are also chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. God didn't choose you so that you could do whatever you wanted to do. 
He chose you so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus is one of the great ends of the gospel. Peter must have had Jesus' words from his great commission ringing in his ears. At the end of Matthew's gospel, you'll remember that Jesus, he commissions his disciples to go and make more disciples. And when they did, Jesus said that new disciples were to be taught to observe all that Jesus had commanded. Commands are meant to be obeyed. These loved ones were chosen for obedience. Not just to anyone, but to Jesus. They were chosen first to obey the gospel of our God. They were chosen to obey Jesus' commands to repent and believe. And in an ongoing way, they were chosen to obey the commands of Jesus given for righteous living. These loved ones were also chosen, you see there in the text, for sprinkling with his, that's with Jesus' blood. And here, Peter is hearkening back to what took place in the Old Testament. Um, back in Exodus chapter 24, after the giving of God's law, there the, the people of God were sprinkled with blood in confirmation of the covenant. And this sprinkling with blood symbolized that God's people, they had been forgiven of their sins. And they were set apart for God's service. And when Peter declares that these loved ones were chosen for sprinkling with Jesus' blood, he's saying that they have been chosen for salvation through Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a moment. God so loved his loved ones that he crushed his most beloved one, his son. God the Father so loved his chosen people that he shed the blood of his own son. Without the shedding of blood, the scriptures tell us, there could be no forgiveness, no remission for sin. Jesus' death on the cross does not merely show us the depth of God's love, it also shows us the depth of our sin. Stepping back and looking at these verses, we can see what Peter is saying. His audience, and really this is true of all Christians, Peter is saying that all who are loved by God in this way, They've been saved by God, the blessed Trinity. Do you see the Father, Spirit, and Son there? Believers are elected or chosen for something and someone. And this choice is made of them. They are not choosing themselves. Rather, God is choosing them. God the Father foreknows and plans the salvation of his loved ones. The Son procures the salvation of his loved ones. And the Spirit applies the salvation planned by the Father and procured by the Son. Well, when might this election or choosing of God's people have taken place? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that God's people were chosen before the foundation of the world. And this is barely comprehensible to us. The electing love of God is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, his infinite freedom, his immense wisdom, and his immeasurable holiness. God's electing love utterly excludes boasting. Instead, it promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of his free mercy. And this should amaze us. This should amaze us. Now, here's the strange thing about God's electing love. It makes us strangers. God's electing love makes us exiles. Election 
makes us exiles. Do you see that in the text? These loved ones are not just elect. They are elect exiles. They are not just saved. They are strangers and sojourners in this world. This is true for Christians. Our election makes us exiles. It makes us exiles because it establishes our citizenship in heaven. Though we may be earthly citizens, our ultimate citizenship is lodged in heaven, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. The word exile is used to describe someone who's a temporary resident. Peter uses the same word over in chapter 2, verse 11, where he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There, the, the pairing of exile with sojourner, I think, is illuminating. And, and, the, and the bottom line is this. Peter's audience, they're out, outside of their homeland. And this may be true in a physical sense, but it is certainly true in a spiritual sense. These loved ones are, are scattered, we see. They're dispersed throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These five names are describing four Roman provinces south of the Black Sea. Back then it was known as uh, Asia Minor. Today we know this territory as Turkey. And the term dispersion was used of the Old Testament people of God when they were sent into exile out of their homeland. And this is significant because here, Peter appears to be applying the term both to Jews and to Gentiles, if not predominantly to Gentiles. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, if you flip over to that, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, we're told that members of Peter's audience were ransomed from the futile ways they inherited from their forefathers. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, if you flip over a chapter to chapter 2, verse 10, we're told, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These statements seem to best apply to Gentile believers in Jesus. In fact, if you, if you, use, uh, if you trace the use of the word exile throughout the Greek Old Testament, commonly known as the Septuagint, then what you'll find is the word is most often used in reference to Gentiles who are sojourning in the land of Israel. We need to think carefully about what it means to be an exile, someone living outside of your ultimate home. Because this has, I think, significant ramifications for how we read this letter. These brothers and sisters in Christ, they were exiles. They were strangers in the lands they were living in. They were facing the discomfort of not belonging Though it is true that some of them may have been facing intense persecution, it is more than likely that Peter's audience, Peter's writing, uh, they were facing a, a milder form of persecution. Nero hadn't actually started killing Christians, probably during the time that Peter is writing this letter. He hadn't started killing them and lighting them on fire. And it was really after Nero that subsequent emperors in the Roman world significantly up the persecution of Christians. What the original audience of Peter's letter was likely facing was ridicule and reviling for refusing to join in the world's ways. If you flip over to chapter 4, verse 4, flip over, go ahead and flip over to chapter 4, verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, you'll see this. Listen to what Peter writes here. He writes, they are surprised, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery 
and they malign you. You see that there? Christians refuse to join the sexual immorality of the day. They refuse to join in the drunkenness that regularly occurred. They certainly refuse to join in the worship of the emperor and the cult deities that were scattered or stationed around town. They faced social pressure to conform. They faced surprise, Peter says, and really scorn. They faced slander in chapter 3, verse 16. That's what it says. They faced slander. It was a little like our own day, wasn't it? Uh, the, the water was boiling, but hadn't boiled over. The pressure was building, but the explosion was still lingering in the distant future. I wonder, do you, Christian, do you feel the pressure? Maybe you're not being called to outwardly conform. Maybe you are. Uh, maybe you're not being overtly criticized. Maybe you are. But maybe you feel the pressure in the way our world discusses decisions and choices and ideas. There's often kind of a, an implicit condemnation of biblical Christianity and biblical Christian ethics. It's often implied that those who don't buy into the world's ways of thinking are living uh, and living. They, they are, uh, uh, Christians are kind of backward, backward kind of people. They're, they're narrow-minded. They're on the wrong side of history. They're prudish. They're boring. They're old-fashioned, out of date. Often implicitly and sometimes explicitly, Christians are shamed for holding on to what the Bible says about creation, about sexual ethics, about greed, and the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ. What we feel in our day is at least what believers felt in Peter's day. And he told them to embrace their status as exiles. He told them to remember that Jesus bore shame for us and for our salvation. And Peter will effectively say to us in this letter, don't waste your exile. Don't waste your exile. Embrace it. Live as an exile. And here's a, a real question for each one of us. We may feel the pressure, but do we receive surprise and scorn? Do we, do we receive surprise and scorn? Is our faith actually public and pronounced? Are we actually providing a witness to the world? Do we live in such a way that provokes surprise and scorn? Now, we obviously should not suffer for being inconsiderate and rude, but there is a sense in which we should be living provocative lives for Jesus. Lives that do actually receive some surprise and scorn. Maybe we should be receiving surprise and scorn for being unknowledgeable about the latest celebrity gossip or, or political gossip. Maybe we should be receiving surprise and scorn for not putting our kids in youth sports on Sunday mornings. Maybe we should be receiving surprise and scorn for verbally and openly but kindly rejecting the world's sexual ethics. Maybe we should be receiving surprise and scorn for being unwilling to work hours which are detrimental to our marriages and families, not to mention our mental and physical health. Maybe we should be receiving some surprise and scorn for limiting our careers and potential for advancement because we have been called to be fruitful and multiply. Maybe we should be receiving surprise and scorn for openly declaring that the work of God's creation is God's making all things from nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Maybe we should be receiving surprise and scorn for announcing that all of life is precious in God's sight and therefore worthy of protection, whether inside or outside the womb. 
being in exile, being in exile is not merely feeling out of home in this world. Being in exile actually means being recognized as one who does not belong to this world. As strangers, we should be strange. It was Flannery O'Connor who said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Is that true of you? Is that true of us? Have you experienced surprise or slander? If not, are you really strange? Or are you just the same as everyone else? Have we embraced our exile and found Jesus sufficient for our sojourn as strangers in this world? Because this spiritual exile is what God in his providence was calling Peter's audience to, this is what they needed prayer for. Peter prays for these chosen and loved ones at the end of verse 2. Do you see it there? May grace, this is a prayer, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. These elect exiles are going to need grace and peace as they seek to make it through the time of their exile. They'll need God's grace and peace multiplied to them. And so Peter prayed for them. It strikes me that this is what we need too. We need God's saving and his sustaining grace. We need God's sovereign and stabilizing peace. Brothers and sisters, let's earnestly pray this prayer for one another. Pray for your brother or sister. Father, pray. Father, would you today give this sister, this brother, uh, grace and peace. Multiply it to them. Peter knew that these elect exiles, these chosen and beloved ones, needed prayer. But they also needed assurance as they, thought, as they sought to persevere during the time of their exile. And that's what Peter gives them. That's what we find in verses 3 to 9. Here we find the assurance, and that's the title of our next point. Follow along as I read Peter's assurance in verses 3 to 9. This is what helps our brothers and sisters make it through their exile. And this is what's going to help us make it through our exile too. Verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We see here, after greeting his readers, identifying them as elect exiles, Peter gives his audience assurance, and this assurance is rooted in God, in God and what he has done. 
And so what does Peter do? He, he blesses God. Do you see that in verse 3? Peter blesses God, which is to say he, he praises God. And when you really step back and observe the whole of these verses, we see that Peter blesses God for how God has blessed his people. Peter blesses God for his mercy. He praises God for his mercy. God's mercy is his saving compassion, his pity displayed toward helpless sinners. And here is, here is the first assurance. God is merciful. But Peter blesses God not just for his mercy, but do you see what he says there? For what? For his great mercy. Friends, brothers and sisters, is not the mercy of God great? Is it not abundant? That's the idea there. When you think of your sins, how they've mounted up to the heavens, when you think of your sins and the sheer number of sins that you have committed, thousands upon thousands, the abundance of your sins, when you think of them, and when you think of God's forgiveness, aren't you astounded by God's great mercy? When you think of your sins and how they have descended into the depths of depravity, when you think of the sheer darkness of your heart, and when you think of these truths in light of God's overwhelming, overcoming mercy, how can we not describe God's mercy as great, abundant toward us? How can we not join Peter in a hymn of blessing? And what has, what has this path of God's great mercy toward us plod? He, not we, you see there, but he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here is another assurance. God gives his people new life, the new birth, regeneration. In language similar to that of Jesus in John chapter 3, Peter announces that God has caused his elect exiles to be born again. In other words, God has sovereignly sent his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, into the hearts of spiritually dead men and women. And he has brought them to spiritual life in Jesus Christ. This is not a dead hope, but a living hope because we are alive. We've been made alive to Jesus, who is himself alive through the resurrection from the dead. And because Jesus is alive through the resurrection of the dead, and because we are united to him in faith, we too shall get up from our graves on the last day. Our living hope is not only animate, it's not only active, but it is also a hope in which we know we will be living because Jesus is living. That though we may die, yet shall we live. But what is this living hope? Well, it's none other than the inheritance that's spoken of there in verse 4. The ancient people of God, uh, Old Testament Israel, they were keen on this idea of inheritance. The promised land of Canaan was often spoken of as their inheritance. And similarly, our promised land of heaven is our inheritance. And Peter assures us that our inheritance is sure. But this is not always the case in our world, is it? I mean, we all know what an inheritance is, right? It's a great gift that's typically given after someone has died. But it's promised when they're living, typically. Now, here's the thing about inheritances in our world. They are perishable. They can be defiled. And they can fade. In other words, a mighty inheritance can come to nothing in this world. 
your great uncle, who has left you a vast sum of money, might spend it all before he dies. And in that sense, your inheritance has been spoiled. It's been spent. Or say that your uncle leaves you his house, but he leaves it in disrepair. It is an inheritance that is faded and tarnished by time. But here, believers are assured that none of that will happen to our inheritance in the heavenly kingdom. But there's another problem with inheritances in this life. Though we are promised them, we may not live to enjoy or receive them. In other words, our great uncle might outlive us. We might die of cancer before he dies of old age. And if you can believe it, there's yet another problem with inheritances in this life. We can be disinherited. Make your great uncle mad, and he might write you out of his will. And this happened with Israel, right? They were disinherited, in a sense, in the exile. Wasn't that the whole reason of their exile? Outside of the promised land, because they disobeyed, they lost their inheritance. Should we be afraid that we won't receive our heavenly inheritance? Well, what does Peter say? He says that God is guarding us so that we receive the inheritance of our salvation. He says at the end of verse 4 that God is keeping our inheritance in heaven for us. He's not going to give it away to someone else. We are sure to get it, not merely because God has given it, not merely because he's guarding us through faith until we get it, but also because he is keeping it for us. And here is a blessed assurance from our God. We are going to get our inheritance. We are going to get to glory because our great and gracious God is guarding us and our inheritance. Our hope is sure. And this, Peter says in verse 6, this is what we rejoice in. That we're going to receive our heavenly home. Even though we are now, even though we are now grieved by various trials. Brothers and sisters, do you rejoice in your inheritance in Jesus Christ? Do you rejoice in it more than all your worldly goods? More than all your worldly accomplishments? It has been said that some are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. But that cannot be true. We probably cannot be heavenly minded enough. It is the assurance of heaven that gives us joy on earth. It is our assurance of heaven that helps us to persevere, to press through trials on earth. And here's the assurance of verses 6 and 7. These trials are necessary. Did you see that? The trials that God's elect exiles endure are necessary. Isn't that reassuring? It would be unbearable if we went through unnecessary trials. But God tells us that these trials are necessary. But perhaps you think to yourself, but the text says, if necessary. Well, if we face trials in this life, it is because our God, in his sovereign wisdom, thinks they are necessary for us. And they are, for he is never wrong. Remember, Christian, that God is in control, he is good, he's sovereign, and he never does anything arbitrarily. He only gives what is for our good and for his glory. Actually, these verses, they give us several assurances for why we can rejoice in trials. If we're not careful, we'll miss these in verses 6 and 7. I wonder if you spotted the first assurance in verse 6 in those words, for a little while. Remember, Christian, your heavenly trust, your inheritance, 
is going to outlast your earthly trial. Your heavenly trust, your heavenly inheritance is going to outlast your earthly trial. Your earthly trial is necessarily limited, but your heavenly inheritance is unlimited. It lasts for eternity. Then the next assurance you see there, it's found, found in verse 7 in, in the words, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Do you see the assurance of those words? Through these trials, God is going to prove your faith to be true and genuine. We are tested to strengthen our trust. Trials draw us deeper into trusting God. It's God pulling us into himself. We go through the fire so that our faith may be purified. We go through the fire that our faith may be purified. Just as gold goes through the fire, it's purified. In a true believer, trials do not downgrade trust. They bring it to a higher quality. Trials do not downgrade trust. They bring it to a higher quality. Christian, you can be sure that in your trial, God is strengthening your grip on Jesus Christ. And the next assurance we have concerning our trials is found in those words at the end of verse 7. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your trust, though tested by fire, is going to bring praise to Jesus on the last day. You can be certain, assured, that your trial-tested trust is going to bring glory and honor to Jesus when he's revealed from heaven in his return. Doesn't that give you joy? Your sufferings now are storing up praise for Jesus on the last day. As one believer said, when Jesus Christ is revealed, the gold of our faith will shine to his praise. What a privilege. Peter gives us, gives his readers, this assurance in light of their lack of sight. Do you see that in verse 8? Peter's readers, they have not seen Jesus. But Peter had seen Jesus. He had that privilege, but his readers had not. In this way, we could really relate to the first recipients of this letter who received this letter. Though we do not now see him, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Brothers and sisters, one day very soon, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Though we do not now see him, one day we will see him. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. See, because of this assurance, we can persevere until we receive our inheritance. Because we have this assurance we have cause not to worry or to fear. Many in the church today are sounding the alarm bells when it comes to the difficulty that Christians face in our culture. But the reality is, is that our inheritance cannot be lost. Our world may come with lions, but we can respond with love, for our inheritance in Jesus cannot be lost. When we're born again into God's family, we have the assurance that we'll receive the family inheritance. When Jesus returns, because it is God who gives it, God who guards us, and gets us ready for glory through trials. We've met the author, we've met the audience, 
We've heard the assurance that believers have in Jesus Christ. And now we turn to our final point, the announcement. This is our final point, the announcement. We find the announcement in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Read those verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things they have now been, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Well, the center of these verses is the announcement that has been proclaimed to Peter's readers. The announcement that Jesus came, that Jesus suffered, that Jesus died, and that Jesus is now alive. That's the gravitational center of these verses. We know that because that's where Peter begins, where he ends, and what he mentions in the middle. Peter begins, you see there in verse 10, concerning this salvation. Concerning what salvation? Well, concerning the salvation he's been talking to his readers about. That they have been born again to a living hope through a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only that this work has begun in them, but also that it will be carried on to completion on the day of Jesus' return. And yet notice what Peter says concerning this salvation. He says that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, the Old Testament prophets who predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories were very interested in the full revelation of this salvation. They were inquiring, searching, questioning, puzzling over what they were writing. They served the people of their own day, but they knew there was a people that they were serving in the future. They did not understand the, the fullness of the salvation that Peter's readers understand. It's like each of the prophets was given a piece of the puzzle, but they didn't get the final picture on the box. Moses, he foresaw a son who would crush the head of the serpent and a prophet who would be like him. Uh, David foresaw a son and king whose line, who would come from his line and whose body would not see corruption. Isaiah foresaw a suffering servant. Daniel foresaw one who is like the son of man. Ezekiel foresaw God bringing to life a bunch of dead people through the power of his word. Jonah foresaw someone who would go down into the depths of the earth and yet come up again. Amos foresaw the fallen tent of David restored and welcoming Gentiles into God's people. Joel foresaw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people being indwelt by the Spirit. Micah foresaw that the birthplace of the Christ would be in the little town of Bethlehem. Job foresaw the resurrection of the Redeemer. And we could keep going on and on. But you get the point. The prophets prophesied these things as they were inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit, but they only got bits and pieces of the puzzle. They didn't see the whole picture, and they didn't actually know the people that they were also serving in the future. They didn't get the full and final picture because they didn't see the full and final person in the flesh. They didn't see Jesus for themselves. Some predicted the sufferings of Christ, some predicted his glories, some predicted the coming of the Lord, and, and so on. And notice, notice this little gem that Peter gives us there in verse 11. The prophets were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ 
and the subsequent rulers. Do you see, do you understand what Peter's saying there? He's saying that Jesus, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, was predicting his own ministry and mission of suffering and glory. The prophets were the mouthpieces of the Messiah. They were the mouthpieces for the Messiah. You want to know why all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ? It's because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, was predicting the path that he would walk for us and for our salvation before he walked it. He, here's how one scholar put it. Jesus is therefore not simply the one of whom the prophets speak. He is the one who speaks through the prophets. Isn't that astounding? Jesus speaks through the prophets. And to our delight, Peter keeps writing about Jesus' announcement through the prophets. Because the truth is, this announcement concerning this salvation continued to ring out after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. But since now he has come, the fullness of it can be proclaimed. In verse 12, we see that not only were the prophets filled with the Spirit, but so were those who proclaimed the good news of Jesus to Peter's readers. In other words, those who first preached the good news to Peter's readers were those who, being filled with the Holy Spirit, took the pieces of the prophet's puzzle, and they put it together, and they showed us how it fit together in the person of Jesus Christ, how it was fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. Peter's readers and we are the recipients of the full, final, and fulfilled message of the prophets. And then, Peter, he tacks on that curious little phrase, things into which the angels longed to look. Isn't that just delicious? Peter is describing the angels straining to look into these things. You could think of it like when you hear children laughing and playing in the bedroom. It's so loud, so full of joy that you just have to know what's going on. So you have to go over there and peek in and see. You have to look into the joy. You long to look into the joy. The angels long to look into the joy of our salvation. Now, brothers and sisters, if the prophets were interested in these things... If they were inquiring and searching and pondering the mysteries of God, then how much more should we be diligently inquiring, searching, pondering the things that have now been revealed to us? Brothers and sisters, if these are things into which the angels long to look, then how much more should we, who are recipients of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, long to look into these things? There are gold and gems and glory to be found in your Bibles. And do you know why there is treasure there? Because on every page, God's great mercy in Jesus Christ is announced. And that announcement, that announcement soothes the souls that suffer as they sojourn. This is what we need in our sojourn. We need this announcement concerning Jesus. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude we need to conclude by pondering how this announcement, this focus on the prophets and the angels longing to look into the sufferings of Jesus and his subsequent glories ties into what Peter has already said. The focus on the announcement of our salvation is really just another form of assurance for exiled believers in Jesus. Because we are here reminded that this announcement that has been ringing down the halls of history and that God, he's faithful, he brings his promises to pass. Because God is a faithful God, He fulfills the promises 
that he puts in the hearts and mouths of his prophets. If our God fulfills the promises that he has put in the hearts and mouths of his prophets, and he does, and he has, then he will fulfill his promises of guarding his people until they get to glory. And as we read and delight in 1 Peter, let's embrace our exile. Let's live in love as exiles. Let's live as those who are not home yet, but who have the assurance, have God's assurance, that we will get there. So let's travel clinging to this announcement of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ as we go on to glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have been so kind to give us this letter from Peter. Father, you have been so kind to put Peter in redemptive history, a man so full of weakness and sin, a man we can so identify with, so understand and learn from, a man who at times disowned Jesus and didn't speak the right words to honor Jesus. And Father, that's been us. We have at times remained silent when we, would have, we should have spoken. There have been times where we've taken our eyes off Jesus and we've begun to sink. But Father, we give you thanks that you show us that you have saved Peter, that you've sustained Peter, and that you've made Peter your servant. And you can and will do the same with us. Father, help us to live as elect exiles. Help us, yes, to be strange in this world. Not to be the same as everyone else in this world, but to be different. To show that in our lives, with both our words and our deeds. And Father, give us assurance, persuade our hearts by the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you've given us the new birth, that you're guarding us and that you're guiding us through trials onto glory. And Father, help us to delight in the announcement of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Help us to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and give us an eagerness each day to find him in your word and to be found in him in faith. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.